Talkers. Welcome to Speaking Destroy, episode 73. Speaking Destroy is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is music attorney Eric German. Eric worked with the record companies in their lawsuits against Napster back in the day, including AM Records v. Napster. He's also a massive Metallica fan and spent his teenage years playing in rock bands. These days, his clients include Five Finger Death Punch, AWOL Nation, Bad Wolves, and Asking Alexandria. This conversation is filled with insights about copyright law as it pertains to music. One great way to support this podcast is to go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, and write a nice little review. Like this one from Steve S.T. Cowboy. Great podcast, flavored by Metallica, but essentially music in general. This is a great podcast, primarily because of Ryan Downey. Aw, thank you, Steve. He's a great interviewer, develops a great rapport with each guest, with the core of the discussions being all things Metallica, but stemming into often interesting directions regarding inspirations, artistic directions, and sometimes just general humor. Anyone who was ever a Metallica fan who has a passion for music will find this not only a worthwhile listen, but a worthwhile subscription. That review nails exactly what I set out to do with this podcast. It makes me borderline emotional. So thanks again for that. See if you can top that review, uh, and I'll probably read it in one of these intros. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. You can find Speak and Destroy on all of those various platforms, as well as Facebook and YouTube, and at SpeakandDestroy.com. And check out the other podcasts in the Pop Curse Podcast Network, including Pop Curse, which features musicians talking movies, and No Prize from God, featuring conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. So here it is, my conversation with music attorney Eric German. This is Speak and Destroy. Before we get into Metallica, tell me a little bit about when you first discovered your love for music and then at what point you understood, okay, not only is this something that I love, it's something I've got to participate in in some fashion. I'm going to be involved in the music business. Right. Well, my, my, in my high school, you were either a jock or you fixed cars or you were some kind of uh, 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 outcast or there was a group of us that, that played guitar and, and jammed and hung out in garages and rehearsal spaces. And so real early on, I mean, I got into, I'm, I'm 50 this year, right? So I turned 13 and I was going to see concerts. So I came, you know, it's a different world today, but my parents were letting me, I saw Jewish Priest and Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath and, you know, the whole jam. And talk about one of those concerts I'm sure somewhere in this in this podcast but I just completely fell in love with guitar based hard rock heavy metal real early and it was such a great time 1983 1984 1985 86 right 
And uh, so that just, I never lost it, man. I had that passion, this same passion that I still have. These were my heroes. Instead of Marvel yeah. hero characters, I was into uh, James Hetfield. You know what <laughs> I mean? And like, I would sit there and I'd emulate those bands. I would try to learn those, how to play those, uh, those bands on guitar. I would cover, you know, get together in my parents' basement and play the Call of Cthulhu and Hello Waits by Slayer and, you know, like, and yeah. I just never left it. Right? So when I went to college, I was in bands. I had done all sorts of different stuff like that. But and, and when, let me back up just a second. Yeah. Uh, what, what town are we talking about? I grew up in Albany, New York area. So they call it the Capital District, mm-hmm. specifically Latham, New York. And I was playing in hard rock and heavy metal bands. There was a lot of cool shit going on. And a lot I'm going to gonna give you a quote that I, that I repeat all of the time. And it's not original. It's borrowed from my friend Dave Peters, who said it to me. And I've been repeating it for 15 years or more. Never trust anyone in the music business who didn't try to start a band first. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, I mean, I tried, I started a few bands. And yeah. anything I could do to be connected to music. So I've done everything from, you know, launching websites and writing about music to working in a record store. I literally worked at Tower Records before. I've uh, uh, messed around in recording studios. I've tried to be in bands. I've tried to manage bands. I've worked for concert promoters. This is why we get along so well, because I've done all of those things too. (laughs) (laughs) Anything I could do to be closer to the music that I love. But then when I went to college in 1988 to 1992 at Syracuse University, I grew up in kind of a heavy metal town, hard rock and heavy metal town. And maybe music changed during that time period because grunge hit, killed metal dead. But I, it was pre, for the most part, pre-internet and pre, you know, I got, I, I received my music information from magazines and from mm-hmm. uh, MTV Hamburger's Ball and, mm-hmm. you know, waiting for Circus and Hip Parader to come out every couple of months or something like that, right? And when you go away to college and you're sort of isolated from your crew, I was, you know, there were, there were albums coming out, uh, you know, a Testament album would hit, you know, in 1992 or, or an Overkill album when everyone else is focused on Pearl Jam and Nirvana or whatever. And if you can't connect with your people on the internet, you're sort of, it's one of those things, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, mm-hmm. music's a communal thing. It's a way to connect with other people. So I would hear that, you know, Sabotage record or that Slayer record. And I would want to like talk to people that also like that. And yeah. But I discovered the internet, a real early version of the internet, a dial-up service where I got on these message boards and chat boards. And when everybody else was partying at the frat party or whatever, I'd kind of dip out and go geek out on the computer and started emailing people all around the world. And I realized, oh my gosh, this is the way that mainstream media, because mainstream media no longer cared about hard rock and heavy metal anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would now be able to connect through computers. And it's like an electronic version of the tape trading scene and fanzines. Literally, back in the I, day. Yeah. literally I, I made a friend that was in Germany that was emailing me cassette tapes of early like century media bands like Ice Earth and Nevermore, but also yeah. sweet, heavy metal, you know, Dark Tranquility or At the Gates and yeah, and and, and, and in Flames and, and black metal and stuff like that. And so yeah, it literally the computer turned into physically exchanging tapes and stuff like that. And then I went to law school in 1994 with this idea that music was going to unite uh, communities and bring sort of. I really thought like the cause of like 
hard rock and heavy metal was like important to me, right? And like, <laughs> like, like all of those songs that are about metal. I thought that I would go, uh, in, not, not believe, to still do, right? <laughs> um, and I got to this point where I thought that uh, coming together, you know, this, this computer, internet, uh, you know, message boards and stuff, was going to be able to build a community. And I realized I was going to get all my music through a computer, through a cloud-based thing, and through, mm-hmm. uh, and that was going to unite communities and empower artists, and it became my mission in life. And so I went to law school with the idea that I was going to learn everything I could about the intersection of computers, copyright law, mm. and music business, and that sort of launched my career. And that's and that's you know not to pat you on the back super hard, but that's extremely prescient considering you were thinking about music and copyrights and the relationship to the internet, you know, what's that seven, eight, nine years before Napster? Like, you know, you were, you were, so you were recognizing like, okay, this is changing the way that people talk about music and in ways consume music. If you have people emailing you stuff, Um, at what point, you know, did you start to, to recognize like, okay, this is going to severely shift copyright and how, how yeah, that's all handled in I mean course. I got I got my first uh, email address when I went to law school in the fall of 94 and my professor my torts professor first year I became her research assistant she was an expert in copyright law she mm. cited in a in a law review article that formed the basis of a huge supreme court decision about uh the legality of VCRs right <laughs> wow right yeah home taping <laughs> and when people were <laughs> the FBI alert off, yeah People were taping stuff off television and the, and the movie studios and the, they were very concerned that this was going to kill the market for yeah. people seeing video cassettes and renting video cassettes. So that case, her economic theory, not to get too geeky here, that under- No, wait, this was, let's do inside baseball. I love it. it her, her economic theory that was one of the grounds of something, an article called Fair Use as Market Failure that talked about when something isn't being made available then using it, you know, in other words, a song, for example, that's not available online, mm-hmm. that sort of, it might be fair use to then therefore get it through, it, it, you know, unauthorized means or something. Yeah. It's a more complicated theory than that, but that sort of helped to shape this doctrine, which shaped copyright law. So as soon as I became a professor, I was attracted to the idea that copyright sounded like the most music businesses, you know, e thing that you would have in law school. Mm-hmm. I really dug in. I realized, you know, what an incredible opportunity it was to work for this particular professor. And that got me super focused at the same time that I was in this world of, you know, trading tapes from people that I met on like CompuServe or mm-hmm. early stuff like that on, on a Usenet news group called alt.rockandroll.metal.heavy. Yes. That's what yes. I used to go to. I lived there. <laughs> I post all these messages. Ultimately, as I was in law school, we got uh, pretty focused on the idea when the World Wide Web started to pop off that um, we were going to uh, build a community online. And I started, one of my friends started an email newsletter, one of my friends from college called The Metal Update. And what he would do would call on telephone Century Media mm-hmm. and different record companies and talk to whoever would answer the phone in the warehouse and get whatever information he could. And he started emailing that around to our buddies from college that also like uh, hard rock, right? And heavy metal. Obviously, so obviously a man after my own heart. 
<laughs> that grew. I'll shout him out. His name's Brant Winterstein. And that email list grew to over 10,000 emails, right? Wow. Which was a big deal back in the 90s, right? Yeah, it's a big deal now. And this was pre-blabbermouth and all that stuff. And so mm-hmm. we, uh, uh, because he just started forwarding his friends and they were, hey, can you add my cousin? Or hey, send this to my buddy. Then Very we, familiar with that. <laughs> you hey, I heard you have an email list. Right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, like I told you, Ryan, I'll just say this on camera instead of off. Uh, is someone I was in a, uh, a prominent recording, uh, a prominent recording artist studio an hour or two ago, and I said I had to run back here to tape this podcast. And they said, "What kind of podcast is Metallica podcast?" Oh yeah, Ryan Downey's thing. Yeah, <laughs> right. I love so, it. Uh, I love anyway, it. but the uh, um, I I learned that uh, I loved copyright law, and that this was really to me was a way to take the power back for artists and for for kind of downtrodden genres that mm-hmm. have the, I, you know, you know that, hey, screw MTV and screw the man and that, mm-hmm. that I from way back when we were younger. Of course. But that if I was able to help empower the direct connection between fans and artists, mm-hmm. it wouldn't matter, you know, what some guy in a suit in New York City decided was worthy of being on a radio or on television. And instead we could have a, uh, um, you know, we, we could unite the fan base and get the music to the people, right? And yeah, that's, yeah. I'm 22 years old, right? but I'm thinking that's the meaning of life. And that's the most important thing in the world. Yeah. And, and then the world, you know, uh, started to really change with, with Napster and all that stuff. And, uh, that, you know, I don't know if I should keep going on that. Oh path. yeah, no, we, we should. I mean, and obviously that intersects with Metallica because of course no other artist is as associated with the Napster era as Metallica. <laughs> And, you know, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, so I'll, I'll be brief, but my take, even while it was happening, and I recognize that I'm biased because I'm such a Metallica fan, but even when it was happening, I recognized that their argument wasn't about greed. It wasn't, you know, because you'd hear a lot, oh, Metallica needs every penny they can get. Aren't they rich rock stars? I, I always thought the fact that they were so successful undermined that argument right away. It's like, well, no, clearly this isn't about chasing every dollar right. for them it's about control it's about presentation it's about making sure that they're in charge of how their music's distributed and if they ultimately choose they want to give some music away for free which they certainly have in subsequent years um it needs to be their decision and they and they want they want to artistically handle how it's presented what it looks like and i believe the whole napster thing really kicked off for them because an unfinished working version of a demo leaked to radio and then they went, well, how did that happen? And oh, it was this thing called Napster. So I recognize, you know, from the very beginning what the motivation was. And I think where the, the PR crisis developed was that Napster kind of thumbing their nose and wink, wink, nod, nodding at Metallica said, well, we're just a platform. We, you know, we can't take this stuff down because it's peer to peer. You would have to tell us every single person who's trading it for us to approach each of them. And then that was the photo op of Lars like wheeling in boxes full of names, like, okay, here you sure. go. And, and obviously the unfortunate side effect is it looked as though Metallica were targeting their own fans. But as Lars very eloquently pointed out way back then, this whole idea of free and this whole revolution, there was money behind it. There were hundreds of millions of dollars being invested into this idea that investors were expecting returns on and, and hundreds of millions of dollars, I should say, over time, you know, when, and when you look at someone like Kim.com, 
you know, living in this massive compound. It's like, yeah, the, 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 there's money is still there. It's just shifting into a smaller group of people that are even less interested in music than the suits at the record labels. For sure. For sure. So, so you got to go, go back in order for me to tell this part of the story correctly. Please. You gotta and, and, and you're, and you're going to be, I don't think I've had anyone better equipped on the show yet to tell the story than you. So please, the well, floor is yours. But from my personal perspective, I, I grew up, Metallica was everything. I mean, let's just start with the fact that I'm a super, 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 you know this, we, we, we traveled to an event once to, mm-hmm. What did we go see? The Bay Area Thrash. Uh, oh yeah, we saw a murder on the front row together. That yeah. was fun. But the uh, um, I have been uh, a super fan forever. It changed my life when I first heard Metallica. I was uh, I, the first album that I was able to buy. I got into them on Ride the Lightning, but the first album I was able to buy was Master of Puppets. I was waiting at the store. I skipped a school and stood in line at Strawberries Music and waited for. <laughs> with my buddy to buy Master of Puppets the day it came out. And when I finally took the boxes out of the back and started cutting them, I was offering over the guy, like it was the most important thing ever. And then he said, oh, we only have the vinyl right now. I didn't even have a record player. I said, right? I'll take it, yeah. <laughs> and I went home and my dad had a record player and I taped it on a cassette that I still have to this day where I wrote on the side of the and I out there and listened and listened. It was the most important thing ever. I saw Metallica with yeah. Cliff. I saw, I think, the eighth show ever with Jason Newstead. I wow. saw, I've seen him so many times we can talk about all this, but yeah. to this yeah. day, and I work with a lot of bands and, you know, work in the music industry. If you ask me who my favorite band is, it's Metallica. If you ask me the best album of all time, it's Master of Puppets. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, uh, you know, to me, that's, that's everything, right? I learned yeah. to play every note of every song, whatever. So, Fast forward, by the time I'm finally getting, they're, they're the ones that inspired that feeling that heavy yeah. metal mattered and all of that stuff. I mean, yes, I like Maiden and Priest and whatever. But the uh, when I got to this point where I was involved with uh, the, the Napster case and I actually got out, I did very well in law school and I got, I could pick where I wanted to go. I clerked on the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. I was editor of my law review. And all the general stripes and accolades that come with the, uh, uh, you know, kicking ass in law school. And I chose to go to a firm in New York City that had a client called the Recording Industry Association of America. Mm -hmm. That was, we were going to fight to save the music business. This was bet the companies. This is the real deal. I saw Napster when there was hardly anyone on it. And it, it was an oh shit moment for the for the record companies and everyone out. This is gonna fucking change everything. To me, it was there was a form, fundamental morality about right and wrong. Like that shit ain't yours, whether it's locked or not. You can't take it without permission. Mm-hmm. But then there was also all of the legal issues, and I thought it was pretty cut and dried in terms of uh, liability and all that stuff as a student. And uh, I was really excited to be part of what I saw the solution. Fast forward, I start going to cocktail parties. This is on the cover of Time Magazine, CNN's covering every hearing. Mm. You know, I'm a lawyer, and uh, everywhere I go, it was the story of the moment for a year or two, right? Mm-hmm. And everywhere I went, somebody, whoa, you're one of the lawyers. I was like the baby lawyer on the team. And people started hating on the case and uh, the, the, you know, rich, greedy record companies. This is crazy. And like, they started losing, like you said, the PR battle and the narrative. Yeah. And I 
dug in and I would just argue with people left and right and continue to know this is this way. And I felt like in the minority, everyone's fascinated what we did with what we were doing and thought it was really cool that I was doing it. But so many people wanted to argue and you know what that's mm-hmm. like? Wow. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I felt like, uh, I, I just was really had a chip on my shoulder about everybody who didn't get it. Right. I, it was just so many long arguments at some cock keg party or whatever. Right. And then all of a sudden, they they wanted artists to get involved because to bring because it would to, it didn't it was very much painted as greedy record companies oh, versus yeah. sure right yeah but instead here let's get some artists and that artists had to be strong and they had to be powerful and they knew they were going to take a baseball bat to the face so I didn't see Metallica getting involved and it, their lawyer uh, at King's Home Paterno Howard King. Uh, he also represented Dr. Dre, who also mm-hmm. got at the same time, mm-hmm. and came into the into the mix with this concept that they were. I saw them as the the bodyguards, the bouncers who stood up because the, the, I saw it as somebody was being belligerent at the bar and harassing all, and somebody had to step to this yeah. guy. Yeah, and, and it was, so it was like the two biggest guys in the room were like, yeah, hey, they, was, they on they behalf of everyone else, not themselves. That's what it was a principled matter. Yes. Yeah had to do it that they were uniquely positioned to do they had the balls to do it and they took the hit for the betterment of us all and that's why you pay for spotify right now and that's why you pay for in many ways they saved the music industry and if that case hadn't gone the way it had gone we'd be in a completely different world vis-a-vis the music industry and you can talk about how much spotify and those things devalue copyrights but man if it was totally free and you could just do whatever you want that would really be devalued so these guys i saw took the hit and were strong enough to do what needed to be done in order to uh uh you know to make this uh uh you know to, to make a statement that you know so that wasn't greedy at all i doubt they made one more dollar they probably lost a few. they cents. probably lost money on it and and the idea that you know it got miscast as they were against progress. They were against change. They were against technology. And it's like anyone who really pays attention to that band knows that they were selling high quality soundboard recordings, MP3s of their concerts the night after they performed them on their website years before other bands were doing that. They've always been very innovative and very forward thinking in terms of the stuff that they're interested in and what turns them on and getting excited about it was just, yeah, it was really control. And I think it was really about, for someone like Lars, especially, who is the consummate music fan, right? He's the, he's the kid that followed Motorhead. He, he's the person that ingratiated himself with Diamond Head and stayed there and, you know, had every record and was the person in Orange County that everyone could go listen to all the imports at his house. And, you know, I think it's that same spirit where he really saw what was coming. And I often point people to this on YouTube and I can toss it in the show notes, but there's a great episode of Charlie Rose, who of course, Charlie Rose has been canceled since then, but there's a Charlie Rose episode from the era and it's Lars and Chuck D from public enemy debating about Napster. And Chuck D is brilliant. And, you know, has made some of the best records of all time. I have tremendous respect for Chuck D, but when you watch that with the, with the 2020, vision of of hindsight everything Lars predicts and his side of the debate came true and everything Chuck predicts was 
incorrect. Ah, you know, that's Trump, fascinating. Trump was saying Napster was, you know, going to be the best thing ever for artists and music. And we were going to see more labels and more this and more that. And he had this whole trip that was very, very optimistic. And then you have Lars right. on the other side going, hey, this is going to bleed into TV shows, books, video games, movies. You know, this 20 years ago, Lars was on Charlie Rose predicting where that was going to go. And yeah, and to your point about Spotify, I think that the argument that I always have with people is when they say, ah, oh, Spotify, you know, they're ripping off bands and they're barely paying anything. The, the, the response to that to me is twofold. One is, well, the alternative was free. You know, something like right. Spotify came along and offered music fans a way to have some kind of clear conscience that something's going somewhere to somebody and it's not the same as stealing. And I think most people, given the opportunity to stream legally, would prefer to do so, not only out of their conscience, but because the more difficult you make it to go and get the pirated stuff, while simultaneously making it easier to get stuff legally, people will opt for the legal option. And unless they're hardcore pirates who we've already lost, who are, who are never coming back. So I, I, I think it's great in that regard. And then the other part of the argument when, when artists complain about how little money they're making is I say, read your record contract. The record labels are making plenty of money from Spotify. It's the artist that's still not making much. And it's just like you weren't making much when they were selling your CD for 19 bucks a tower. Correct. You know, I, have it, many, I, have, I have many artists I work with that, that uh, you know, they come to me and maybe they're a certain level into their career and they don't even know what a record royalty is because they just think all it is is the advance that you use to make the record. And I try to explain to them, no, 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 there's record. You mean ASCAP money? No, 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 no. You mean mechanical royalty? No, no, no. You get paid a royalty. So yeah. mission in life, especially in the pandemic now, is to try to, uh, we're touring is substantially paused, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to help, you know, maximize the amount of money that you can, and you can make a ton of money from masters. You can Yeah, and, and dude, and that's the thing with streaming also is that some of the things that record labels would always do with the, you know, Hollywood accounting, you know, like, oh, this Transformers movie never turned a profit, you know, this, <laughs> like, is they, is they would charge you obviously manufacturing for CDs, distribution, there's the one stops and distributors getting their cut. There's the stores, there's, there's returns. They had to allocate all these reserves for CDs that might get returned and so on and so forth. Streaming eliminates all of that. There's no warehousing, there's no manufacturing, there's no returns. People aren't returning the songs that they streamed. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. because the overhead is coming down, a lot of the excuses for the accounting are going away the kind of backwards accounting that would result in a band never recouping you know if if, if we were going to go there we're in an incredible time of growth in the music business it's really cool there's a lot of money to be made and uh most of the artists i work with are doing just fine mm -hmm. they're, they're kicking ass in the middle of this uh pandemic thing and if we overlay touring onto it that additional revenue stream they've learned now to fish rather than being given a fish. And they know mm. great revenue outside of that mm. on, on touring. But once that comes back and you overlay that, it's going to be a boom time for the music industry. It's going to be the roaring yeah. place. And, and, you know, yeah. Goldman Sachs said that uh, streaming revenue is going to double by 2030. And, uh, you know, you, you look at catalog sales and master rights acquisition and 
the multiples that people that's have. a big business right now, right? Like there's, huge, there's venture huge. capitalists coming in sniffing around Absolutely. buying up whole catalogs. So it's, it's really exciting. But like, look, what I was trying to say was for me as a kid who was relatively still a kid when we were working on the Napster case, um, to have be so dug in on a big argument with so many people coming at you against it and to have basically your Marvel superhero hmm. up and help. And that was freaking cool. And, and I, it bummed me out the hate that they took, but it added to the respect. And I completely, of course, understand what they tried to do. Maybe it got bungled in the sort of the, the messaging and the good, you know, the public eye, it's hard to take away shit from for free from people when you're mm-hmm. perceived as a wealthy individual. But um, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, fundamentally, they did the right thing and changed the world because of it. So, you know. Well, it's interesting to, to jump backwards for a minute to your law professor and the fair use um, precedent and everything that you were talking about. It, it sort of makes me feel better about my own personal philosophy, which is that I don't uh, pirate music. I won't, I'm not going to legally download something unless it's a record that is out of print, unattainable and isn't available anywhere through legitimate services. Then I feel okay. Like, okay, I can go grab this from the internet. See, fair use. can't find it somewhere else. One of the things that Napster wanted to argue, if we're really going to get into that, there was something called the staple article of commerce doctrine that came out of that VCR case, right? The first this is what it was about that VCR. And they basically said that when you're a, um, there's a difference between a crowbar and thieves to like a crowbar could be used to pry open a, a trunk, but it also mm-hmm. could be used for uh, other things that are, are not illegal. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. an item of, you know, a knife could, could stab somebody, but it also could cut your dinner. Right. So um, there are, uh, there's this concept in the law that if something has substantial non-infringing uses, then it can't be held liable for the fact that some people use it. Are using it for crime. Yeah. So, so VCR, where would that fall then? Because you can obviously use it to pirate material, but you can also use it to watch. Yeah. Well, the case became about in that case, is there a substantial non-infringing use for a VCR? And at the time there was no market, like you couldn't really buy uh, 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 you know, movies and stuff like that. It wasn't that kind of sale. If you did, it was like hundreds of dollars to buy it. Like yeah, that. I remember that era. Right, but the uh, um, uh, if you were able to, but they, they said, but time shifting, that's the frame. Like watching a show at four o'clock instead of at one o'clock. Today, we're in this on-demand world. We can watch whatever we want, whatever. Mm-hmm. DVRs and all that stuff. By the way, DVRs went through the same stuff later too. Oh, wow copyright infringement but the idea that you could skip the commercials was really mm. but the um but the, the thing is no you're just watching the same thing and it is ad supported so those ads are still in the thing that you're watching you're just watching it you know later because you had you had something to do at that time remember those days ryan where mm-hmm. appointment television at nine you yeah. had to be at your tv at yeah nine. you bet you better be at your tv at the right time for Buffy right. the Vampire Slayer, The X Files. I mean, I'm thinking that's even as an adult. I'm thinking as a kid. I mean, yeah, yeah. everything I had, to, yeah, I had to know when it was coming on. So, so if that, uh, so because of that, right? There was this idea that um, that that was oh, uh, that was a fair use, right? And fair use, or the question was, 
is there a substantial non-infringing use for Napster, right? Mm. The question there is, what are you doing with Napster? And so it became a lot about, well, some people are trading Bible passages and some people are trading pictures of their kittens and some people Mm. are using it to upload their demo tapes. And so, you know, like, and and my answer was bullshit. Right. (laughs) Fucking songs, you asshole, right? And uh, um, we had to slog through all of that stuff to figure out, uh, you know, what people were doing with it. So we were, I was working with a team of experts to try to sample what was being traded on Napster and what mm-hmm. percent of that oh, was sure. copyright infringement, infringing material. So that- To be able was, to demonstrate that that was the primary use for it versus- Correct. Yeah. Ironically, but- I later- I later went to work for on a case, uh, a, a service called Kazaa. And mm-hmm. in that case, uh, those people behind Kazaa, some of them started Skype and then started Spotify. Wow. Yeah. The twist, the twisted uh, web of that. Yeah. You know, I, I'll tell you, and, and granted, I didn't think of this in 1999 or 2000, so I'm not going to try to call myself a prophet. But I have been saying this for a number of years and I think longer than anyone else that I'd talk to. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I feel like the mistake that was made, again, hindsight being 2020, was that the hardware manufacturers, in this case being Apple, making the iPod, and the internet service providers, that those two entities or industries or whatever, that they should be held liable for this stuff because, you know, the idea that I'm buying a $200 iPod and then I'm going to, and this holds 10,000 songs, wink, wink, like I'm going to spend $10,000 filling my $200 device or that I'm going to continue to buy continually upgraded faster and faster, more capable download speed. Well, what am I getting all that for? You know what I mean? It's like, I feel like, I feel like the ISPs and the, and the hardware manufacturers shared some, li- some liability that they were able to kind of skate away from. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe um, cassette player manufacturers and companies that made blank cassettes and VCRs and VHS tapes, they eventually were found to be, right? Didn't they have to yeah, there was start kicking in some money? negotiated taxes like on when you made the digital audio tapes there was like a of a tariff that was put on that to kind of uh the, you know negotiate the fact that people were going to be using it for ill begotten gigs but you know with with this stuff there there was um there's there's primary copyright infringement liability then that what does that mean that means you copied something or you distributed mm-hmm. something that you didn't have you made a derivative work or you, you know, I don't want to get too geeky about copyright law, but cop, there's six fundamental uh, rights and sometimes seven depending, but you know, the right to reproduce, the right to display, the right to distribute, the right to perform. All of these are the rights, the fundamental rights that give entertainment products and stuff, the ability to monetize. Right. And by the way, I think this will be fascinating to people listening. It's fascinating to me. So thank you. No need to so apologize. Then, then with respect to the uh, secondary, so primary liability is Ryan Downey, you copied something you weren't allowed to copy or you mm-hmm. uploaded something you weren't allowed to. Secondary liability is trying to hold another, like a service provider or a device manufacturer liable for what the other people are doing. 
So the record companies went yeah, out. It's, like it's like gun rights battles, right? <laughs> it's <holding laughs> Trying to hold gun the gun manufacturer liable for, liable for what someone murder. did with the gun. Right. Yeah. So in, under copyright law, you can do that with, it, with two distinct theories. Number one is called, uh, uh, is called well, it, the first one comes out of the doctrine of sort of uh, aiding and abetting liability, right? Okay. You know in criminal law, yeah. you talk about aiding. One guy robs the bank, the other guy drives the getaway car. Mm -hmm. They're both liable for the crime, right? The second, the person that assisted. So under what's called uh, uh, what contributory copyright infringement, you have to have knowledge of the infringing activity and you have to have materially contributed to it. Mm. Well, in Napster, it's easy to say that you materially contributed. You provided the actual means by which you could do it. But did you know what was being traded and what that this particular file was infringing and what mm. kind of knowledge did they have? That's why Lars showed up with a stack full of usernames. What he was saying was, these people, these files right here, yeah. These illegal files and now you need to take them off your thing so that that was an attempt to kill their ability to say that they didn't know which files were infringed. yeah that was yeah. and it was a big show i'm sure those 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 papers were blank probably <laughs> like the like the like the stuff trump's working on in the hospital right, right exactly but the uh the second way that you can get uh, uh secondary liability is through what's called vicarious copyright infringement liability. And it's a different legal theory that underpins that, which is uh, the, uh, it's, it's more based on like landlord tenant law. It's a doctrine called respondeat superior, which is a Latin phrase for, you know, the, 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 the master is liable for the servant. It's kind of like, basically, hmm. if, if you throw a huge party at your landlord's house and somebody gets killed or something, you know, like, the the uh the landlord could be held liable for what happens in their property. Mm. And like you show a giant hold a giant rave in a warehouse, uh you might not be the one selling the the drugs to the people or whatever, but you're responsible right. for or gets killed. And the the two elements mm. of that are that you have the right and ability to supervise and control the infringing activity and you financially benefit from it. Then okay. Right. So like a show promoter or a kid breaks their leg at the show. So so for you have the ability to keep that kid safe and were you so, making money from that kid being there? Right. So so two things. Number one, not uh, contributory copyright, knowledge of the infringing activity and material contribution. Alternate legal theory, uh 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 uh, uh vicarious copyright infringement. Did you have the right and ability to supervise and control? And did you uh uh financially benefit from it? So in other words, mm exercise that right to control something and instead sit back and collect your money then you're on the hook for what goes bad right and, the, and so napster was was liable with both theories or both <laughs> <laughs> then what happened was the, the 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 people the technologists got smart right and they made what was more distributed so instead of napster was a centralized index mm -hmm. where there was a you went to a website and it would it, they hosted like a, a list of all the files and that's easy to say in hindsight that dude come on if you're if you're returning search results that say metallica disappear i remember very specifically i disappeared yep. that was the song yeah that was the and one my uh that mission impossible center yeah so and and that was right in the heart of that i remember seeing yeah. that was that was the rough version that, that leaked to a radio station right 
So if that was there, right, uh, uh, they, you, they should know better. But what they did was the next uh, wave of services like Kazaa and Grokster and those things, what they did was it was a piece of software. There was no centralized index. There was mm. no central headquarters. And there it became much tougher. So those cases turned on a new theory. That went to the Supreme Court of the United States. I worked on that case as well. It's called MGM versus Grokster, but it also included the Kazaa service and several others which then the next case was against LimeWire and there were... <laughs> the, uh, and, that, and, and that's when it was becoming whack-a-mole, right? Because just as right. you're settling one, there's already yeah. a new, new place everyone's going to. Correct. So what, what I was looking at was the, uh, the, in the Grokster case, uh, they, they, there was a new theory and it, it became a third prong by which you could hold these services secondarily liable. It was called inducement liability. And this goes to the point you were making before, and this was a long-winded way to back up your point, but in inducement liability, you have to show that uh, somebody, if somebody's advertising something as if they're basically baiting you into doing it, like get all your favorite songs with our cool new software or something mm. like that, and you're, or you're advertising, you know, look, you can get Metallica and the Rolling Stones and whatever, if you're sort of but you know, advert, you're inducing, you're encouraging people to use your product that way. You can also be secondarily liable. So as you should be, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're like, you know, hey, I mean, if you're just some guy standing outside the liquor store after hours, and you go, hey, I, you tell some people walking by, I noticed that liquor store is unlocked. Like when they when they closed up, they forgot to lock the doors. Money and booze in there you're liable for those people then going in and robbing the place. I would imagine. I knew a, I knew a kid that told me when I, when I was in high school that they uh, did, they, they were a newspaper delivery person. And they said, uh, we know which houses are on vacation because they stopped taking the paper. So uh, you like, uh, yeah. Inducement. Right? <laughs> yeah. So if you're basically, you know, it's some sort of entrapment or, you know, encouragement, right. Uh, that, that was the other legal doctrine by which that uh, you can be held liable. So, Super interesting. After all those cases, that, that whack-a-mole stuff kept going, we got into, um, uh, I became national coordinating counsel for end-user lawsuits, and I was helping, uh, uh, you know, the fight against individuals. And that was far less satisfying, less intellectually challenging. They just sort of gave up the, on that track of trying to hold the services liable, although then the battle went to video. And YouTube, there was massive litigation about YouTube and Vivo and all that, right? But um, uh, the suits against the, the people, the fans and stuff like that, I was coordinating uh, litigation for about a year, a year and a half, and I burned out on that. And yeah, that, I would imagine so. That no longer felt like the righteous mission for me. And uh, uh, now uh, I became the internet police, right? <laughs> and I was yeah, like, and I feel like it's the difference between foreclosing on you know the working family that got in over their head on a mortgage versus you know some huge group of investors that has like a billion dollar property somewhere and they just defaulted on it because they decided it was a bad investment you know what i mean it's like yeah. hypothetically they're the same thing but in brass tacks like real life like they're not the same thing and it's like you know you kind of would rather go after the the fat cats who are doing it in big numbers than, than somebody but the, who but the cool made a mistake. thing that happened there was I got, uh, uh, after I got out of that, I got into more direct connections with artists and built mm -hmm. the rest of my career that way.
Absolutely. So, which, which of course, and I'll emphasize this in the, the introduction and in the description for the episode, but that's mainly what you're known for and mainly what you do. Um, is, uh, that's what work it is now, but it took a while. Yeah. I, was, I was the Naps, I was the kid on the Napster. <laughs> the baby lawyer, the junior lawyer. You know, yeah. there was a team of, you know, was it 10 people or 15 people? Yeah. It's like the, the little kid. And, but you're uh, right that the pandemic really brings it all full, full circle because it really underscores how important artists having some control and some connection to the art that they create and the way that it's monetized. Like, it's just... Yeah. Because if touring and merch is all you can do and there's bootleg merch all over the internet, you know, I used to always joke that you couldn't download merchandise, but now you sort of can. Um, and then you can't tour. Well, then how are you supposed to be an what artist? A, what about all that on-demand printing? I get, I'm a big Oakland or now Oakland slash Los Angeles. I mean, Las Vegas Raiders fan. <laughs> obviously hit like on every Facebook Raiders group and stuff. Sure. And hit like on every Metallica group. So what do you think pops up on every news feed on Instagram? Oh, get your shirt. That's some sort of illegal mashup between Metallica and, and the Raiders. And mm -hmm. oh, probably doesn't even exist in the real world. It's just a print on demand. It's just an algorithm that creates some shirt. If I feel like clicking on it, it'll come to me. And obviously it'll be, you know, half the size I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And it'll be, and what, who knows what it'll be printed on. Yeah, that's the same thing back when you were downloading things from Napster. You didn't know you're getting a virus. Is the really oh, yeah. Or, if it, or, yeah, or is it going to say Lincoln Park and then you're going to open it and it's going to be Celine Dion? Right, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, and especially back when the download speeds, speeds were so much slower or when it took, you know, a whole night to download a movie and then it's the wrong file or it stopped right. at 98% downloaded and you have to start over. But now we live our lives online, right? And now. Indeed. And everything is right there and for the taking. And one of the beautiful things, the pro of all this is I couldn't, because of what you mentioned that you didn't know, didn't download illegal files, dude, back then, they would have loved, just like uh, 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 the Democrats would love to catch, uh, or the Republicans would love to catch Nancy Pelosi in a hair salon. <laughs> right. Ask, right yeah people would love the idea that one of the lawyers on the napster case or kazar something else was downloading illegal things or someone in the mail room at the law firm or whatever so yeah. it was the biggest no-no in the world yeah. for me to ever which is crazy because you also had to i would argue that you have to have some experience with it to understand how it's oh, oh no, no 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 you know? in a supervised evidence gathering mm. type, you know learning how to use it sure but yeah what talking about is for fun and so right <laughs> many years later because i guess what i'm a lawyer but i'm a fucking music fan first yeah. and foremost yeah. and, I'm at and now today man uh when i finally got on spotify which was early for most people but you know i had never experienced the anything i wanted to click of a mouse world yeah Holy shit, man, the day the light bulb went off and I said, you mean not only is every song ever in this thing, I can also sample anything I want. Like if I want to hear that weird Iron Maiden live album that they put one out every other year, or something, <laughs> maybe I wouldn't have gone to the store and physically bought a $20. Absolutely. And the argument that you always heard during Napster of, oh, this album only has two good songs. I don't want to pay for that. And now you can just listen to the two good songs. Yes. Yeah. And, and listen to them all and go on a deep dive. And, you know, it started with YouTube. You get sucked into a YouTube. Mm -hmm. 
get sucked into Spotify holes all the time. Oh yeah, and the algorithms are smart, man. They the Spotify ones, they figure me out. You know, what the, very rarely do I go down a rabbit hole where it starts recommending something I don't like. You know, it's yeah. always like right on the money with what I was just listening to. But um, the great thing is I can keep up with every band. I can listen to the band that I don't even sure I really like them anymore, but I'm mildly curious for 20 mm-hmm. seconds. Oh, dude, totally. Or even just to know kind of, you know, something you're hearing about and maybe it's not for you, but you just want to know, well, kind of, you know, a little bit about what it's like so you can navigate a conversation like, about it. Like, let's talk about this. The, um, there was an acoustic album, Metallica, like All Within My Hands or... Mm-hmm forget what was the yeah it was it was from uh it was all in my hands it was from uh one of the bridge school benefits right and so like would i have gone to the store and bought that maybe i don't know maybe it would have slipped beneath the but radar. when it just popped up in your you spotify version of disposable heroes or something like they're unique yeah. really cool interesting yeah. version. and like smn and, and this is the funny full circle mm-hmm. S- two comes out right i was at one of the snm one concerts but not the one oh, I- wow in New York with Michael Kane, like it at Madison Square Garden. I went to an SM, SM concert when, when they were kind of like, like in support of the record. Yeah, but yeah. I think there was only a couple of them. Yeah, right? yeah, you probably better than I knew. But I went, I actually sat next to Howard Stern because wow. order for what at the time Metropolitan Entertainment like hooked me up with tickets and like I waltzed to my seats like in the front. It was amazing. But um, the uh, uh, when the SM2 comes out. And actually, I almost had a chance to go. You went with Andrew Carter, our great friend. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed listening to you guys talk about the drive through, uh, the driving experience. Yeah, and and, and 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 he was on last year. Uh, we did one right after we went to S and M too. Right. So I, I remember talking to him about that, and that you were going to do that, and like that kind of, uh, you know, I didn't get to see that show i can't remember why though i had something else going on or i couldn't go it something. was probably your ticket that i bought from andrew yeah, at one point or maybe that ticket could have been mine but it <laughs> yeah was. yeah but the uh um i i had very much wanted to go and didn't get to go and now it's like i can play with that album and i can listen to it and you know i was thinking like no leaf clover which is on both but like mm-hmm. i love that song and it just works me too and, away and like i was like that's my my jam for a week right and like i can consume that or maybe but now i watch an unboxing video of uh kirk hammond or robert tree whoever was did that unboxing of the all the packaging and i see mm-hmm. them like god damn it now I, I, well, you know what i really want i want the packaging i want the yeah yeah i'll go fully all the way back to physical and, I and that's a big full circle thing too man because you know just the other day i mean obviously as you know um, I don't know if I've ever even talked about it on the podcast, but I have the industry newsletter that I've done for 10 years. And something I pointed out in that the other day was that, you know, while the Machine Gun Kelly album outsold the Deftones album, they both came out the same day, same week, whatever. And the percentage of streaming is way, way higher with MGK as it tends to be with pop artists and hip hop artists relative to rock and metal artists. Deftones out of that 40 something thousand uh, pure sales number that they did, 14,000 LPs. Right. And that is just phenomenal to me. The idea that there were 14,000 people out there now in 2020 that want, that needed that Deftones album on vinyl. And that's just, Isn't that cool? it's Isn't amazing. That cool? And yeah. I think in the pandemic, we're in an environment where it's a lot more, 
you know, people like getting shit in the mail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> ordering stuff online. I yeah. know my clients are experiencing great upticks in March. Oh, yeah. And, so, I've, and, I, and I've had a handful of your clients on the show so far, and I'm sure there'll be yeah. more. I mean, I can, I can give you the list of the ones that, that are the Metallica super fans because we geek out. Like, for example, the Bad Wolves guys. Oh, yeah. When, Doc, um, Doc, Doc was my first uh, return guest. He's, he's, other than Andrew, he's the only person who's been on twice. And, and uh, when, when the, uh, the last Metallica, Hardwired to, self uh, <laughs> Hardwired to Self-Destruct, came out, um, we did a like old school meet John Berklin, by the way, do you know Berklin? Yeah. I actually He's just emailed him and invited him on the show. Uh, probably the same day I did you. I mean, he's a super Metallica fan. Like, like, uh, almost like he has a problem, you know, like John is getting a little weird, right? Like, but the, uh, he's a super fan. And, uh, uh, when, that came out that that weekend. John, Doc, and Meigs Rascone used to be in uh, uh, Cold Chamber, right? Sure. And Chris, Doc, Chris, John, Meigs, myself, I think a couple of people. We had an old school style get together on the Friday night, get you know twelve pack of beers and sit around, and we had like almost like a book club, like a listening party. I love it. All sat there. I love it. Physically together. And made this event out of like spinning that album. So a listening party. <laughs> it's pretty cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I would have come. Dude, when this when this thing is all over and when there's another Metallica album, we gotta we should organize a speak and destroy listening party and get a bunch you of our should. friends together. I mean, you should do events. Record it. Like emo night LA. <laughs> night, you know? Tell, like you, <laughs> this could be a whole brand, man. It cro- it's it's, cro- it's crossed my mind actually. Um my buddy Jay Bennett, who's been on the podcast, who you might know, a great metal journalist. Yeah. Uh, he does. Apparently, by the way, I've only things. met Jay once or twice, but apparently he played a role in procuring some vinyl that our friend Andrew Carter got for me for my 50th birthday. Mm. If you that does this, not surprise me. I mean, I mean, Jay does the uh, White Whale vinyl column for, I think, Revolver. So right. yeah, he's he's definitely the hunter. So yeah. so, but but I wanted to make sure because I don't know how much time we have. I just wanted you to know. Yeah, if I didn't have another interview at five, we I would just keep going with it forever. <laughs> I saw Metallica with Cliff. I saw yeah. I concerts and met the band on the Black Album tour and was really involved with all that stuff. I did. Uh, uh, I've done. Like I said, I saw new sits for show. I mean, on and on. I've seen everything. I've been there. I've been through it, and I'm still obsessed with it. And no, I didn't go to the drive-in, and no, I didn't go to S&M too. Life's starting to get in the way. But <laughs> what, Ryan? When I don't go to those things, I kind of feel like like bad, like I'm supposed to yeah. be there. Like it's, I'm, it's happened to me. My, I mean, my roots. I'll, yeah. I'll tell I'll tell you. Uh, one of my, you know, I try to live my life without regrets, and everything happens for a reason, and it all got me from point A to point B. But I'll tell you, one that comes up in my mind all the time was skipping Heaven and Hell, Megadeth, and Machine Head. Three bands that I love <laughs> dearly. Right, right? Uh, yeah, and there was a San Diego show. There were a couple. I was going to like go, you know, and right. I, didn't, I didn't see a single one. And for some reason, that tour sticks out to me as one I missed. And another one that I missed was Clash of the Titans when it came to I Indiana. Dude, this is, you ready for this? It was part of the Indiana State Fair. Mm-hmm. So you paid your five bucks to get into the fair and you were automatically in to I saw, I Megadeth, saw one, Slayer, Anthrax, Allison Chains. I saw the one with Allison Chains on the facelift tour opening up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so I have to get this plug in just because oh. I don't know how long before this thing airs. Do you know how long before it airs? Uh, I'll let you know. I'm going to try to look at my okay. schedule. But So I'll keep this vague because I don't know whether it's well, – I've got a cover song from an artist that I'm working with that's a Metallica cover. That's one of the most unique Metallica covers you've ever heard. It is going to knock everyone who listens to this podcast socks off, and I can't wait. And just let me tell you – it's incredibly familiar, but totally different. Mm-hmm. Hoping, I mean, I, it gives me chills when I hear it. I, I can't wait to share that with all of you. Yeah, I can't wait to have whoever that artist is. It's coming very soon. <laughs> We're going to have that artist on the show. Talk about it. <laughs> um, well, Eric, dude, yeah. If, like I said, if I didn't have to jump into another one, I would keep going because there's a whole bunch more to do. And I have to have you as a return guest because I want to hear details about meeting them on the Black Album Tour and details about that first time you saw them on Cliff. So we will uh, we'll put a pin in those for next hey, time. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 